Hi, and thanks for tuning in to this awesome episode with Laura Simmons. Uh, but first, I just want to cover a little something something. The Occupied Plus Patreon page has been up and running for a little over a month now, and I just want to give a quick shout out to our founding patrons. Uh, so Emily Milton, Victoria Rivera, Sally Lambshed, Ruth from The Moho OT on Insta, Eva Eastman, Emily Cheeseman, Ellie Bardwell, Robert Pereira, Dr. Robert Pereira, Paige Waller, and Ali Barry. Thank you so much, guys, for putting your trust in me to provide you with extra resources. If you want to be like these awesome people, jump on over to patreon.com forward slash occupied plus. Uh, I'm so grateful for those that support this podcast and all the effort and time and everything else that goes into it. And I am constantly looking for new ways that I can do more and uh, support you guys to be better therapists. So thank you so much for all of your support thus far. On to today's episode, I have the lovely Laura Simmons, who I'm fairly sure is just me in another body. We got along really, really well, and there are so many similarities between our stories and our thinking throughout this episode. I had an absolute blast. Laura runs an online, an, an app called Theratrack, and I won't ruin it here. I'll, we get into the weeds all about it and why it's there, why she sees a need for it the purpose of it and all of that during the episode so if you are interested in moving your practice to a more digital space or how OT can function in a digital space then please do tune in and enjoy this episode G'day my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. No, I 100% agree with that because I didn't know what OT was before I started studying it. Um, it was that that age old story of like, oh, I want to be a physio because I love sport, and you know, I want to go off and be a physio that works with you know famous sports stars, and and that'd be really cool to travel the world and do all those things. Um, and then I went to a uni fair, and someone was I was at one of those uni fairs, and there was an OT and there was a physio, and the OT asked me, you know, um, do you think your UAI and it's going to show my age, but your UAI is going to be you know above ninety seven. No, I was like, no, <laughs> no way. Might show my age because uh, I don't even know what that is. Oh, that's probably a New South Wales thing, though. Oh, yeah. um, so, like, yeah, your HSC scores. Yep. Um, and so there was no way my HSC score was going to get at 97. I'm, I'm, I would say I'm street smart, not book smart, you know, probably those sorts of things. I, so can, like, re- I can relate to that. Which is, which is OT to a T, right? It's problem solving, figuring things out and then finding solutions for them. Um, and I spoke to this lady at one of the uni fairs and she's like, you should apply to occupational therapy. That would be really good for you. And, you know, if worse comes to worse, it's a stepping stone to physio because you can get in there after the first year if you can get a credit average. Yep. And I was like, easy, sorted, done. Um, <laughs> got into OT and then, yeah, first year in 
we had some topics on like mental health and pediatrics and I was like oh this is my jam like figuring things out problem solving um at the time I thought home modifications is pretty cool too Um, I think we might be the same person this is this sounds exactly like me I'm like yeah home mods this is where I'm going I think I really liked the diagrams and I think I really liked the the ability to draw things out because I'm just such a visual learner. Yes. Um, I used to do so, my yeah. bathroom drawings in like AutoCAD because I'd studied engineering <laughs> before it. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going all out on these. Okay. I was in paint. I was much more simple. Um, but Or on sketching Paint's and stuff like work. that. <laughs> it does. Look, the tool works. Use it, right? Um, but yeah, so... Did that for uh, did OT for a year. I also didn't get a credit average in the first year, so I wasn't going to be able to transfer to physio anyway. <laughs> Me neither. Not that I even but considered that's it. Fine. But... Again, like you know, I, I'm okay with not being super book smart. I know that I'm street smart. I know that I've got those problem solving skills. And I mean, I got into yeah my third year prac. One of them was on a locked ward in a mental health ward, and that was just super cool. Again, like really loved the experience I thought like working with real people and like helping them solve real everyday problems so they could get back out in the community that's awesome um and then after that I had a prac in and I reckon the pracs make or break OT like they they just show you what actually is the profession and like Mm. the university course is so interesting to show you what underlies like all the you know all the theories and all that sort of stuff but getting out into the real world is just so much better um and yeah, I got an, a, an awesome experience working in across three special schools in Sydney. Um, and my supervisor, awesome human, also had Asperger's and he was an OT. Um, really, really cool guy. Opened my eyes up to like just the people and the connection and the relationship and how important that part of um, helping someone, especially a kid, mm. get through, you know, and get to achieve their goals and stuff like that. I remember even just as like, you know, a student, he was like, just go sit with that kid at lunchtime. And he didn't tell me that this kid couldn't talk. He just said, go sit with this kid. And I went and sat with them the whole lunchtime. Neither of us obviously said any words. Um, And then this kid came up and hugged me the next day. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. This kid's like built a relationship. I didn't have to say anything. Um, And yeah, it was a really interesting way of learning about, you know, working with kids. And then, yeah, got thrown into the private practice world after that. And yeah, I've never really looked back. That's um, awesome. That's well, a lot of stuff you just said then reminds me very much of the literally the episode that I just put out with Kwaku where we were talking about communication skills. Um yeah. because yeah, like I I feel like OTs OTs are in a prime spot where we need to be really good at communication skills. But yeah. also that doesn't just mean like saying words. That means your ability to be able to do other things as well. Yeah. That active listening and passive listening and all those sorts of things. I mean, those theories in 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 class. I was like, what am I doing? And then realizing how important just reading someone's body language is, or um, seeing, you know, hey, you might say one thing, but your tone or your body language or your position in the room tells me a completely different thing. And yeah, I was listening to that podcast as well, and I was just like, it was ringing so many bells, especially with kids and behavior. Um, like it's so tried and true. They might say one thing and then you go, oh, no, you don't mean that at all. <laughs> or um, I remember I was working with a kid ages ago, side story tangent, um, but 
we're working on emotional regulation and this mum was like, he's always so angry and he's so this and he's so that and he's just yelling all the time. And we worked on emotional regulation for ages and helping him sort of through like emotion coaching of like helping him label his emotions and talk about them. And we were doing something and he had one of his flip outs and I was like, oh man, you seem so angry. And he was like, I'm not angry, I'm scared. And I was like, oh, right. Awesome, massive help for me in terms mm. of helping out what's going on. And the mum and I were like, oh, right. So what we think looks like angry for you is terrified. Um, and it's just, yeah, that complete listening of like looking at body language and things like it might be one thing, but it's completely different when to someone else. Yeah, and it's a big difference in what you might actually do with that person. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, totally. I mean, just it changes your whole response. Like if you're actually in a scared state rather than an angry state, like there's so much more, you know, I guess different strategies you'd use, especially if it's not just behaviour. It's, you know, yeah, hmm. interesting. Wow. So you, with all the interest in mental health, how did you end up in paediatrics at the end? What was it that, what was it that I guess, made the coin land on that side kind of thing? Um, I guess I think I can, I mean, probably lots of different things. It's fun. <laughs> it's a big, big draw card. I think that's why um, most people try and get into paediatric. Yeah. Look, it's it's fun. It's also, it's, it's rewarding. Um, you know, there are definitely difficult times. You're definitely dealing with a lot of behaviours that sometimes people don't even understand that they know why they have them. Um but I mean, like if I go into, I'm in clinic at the moment, but if I go into my clinic, my one wall has a rock climbing wall on it. There's swings hanging from the roof. I get to tumble around on crash mats all day. Sometimes I make slime. Um, get to be a big kid. It's awesome. It's so awesome. Um, and at the end of the day, you see these kids like achieve, like make friends for the first time or go to mainstream school for the first time or, you know, sit through dinner for the first time, like little things like that, that, you know, to an adult might not be a massive achievement, for, but for them is just like the world or, you know, be calm through a whole entire session so they can actually, you know, maybe do their handwriting or if that's what we're working towards. But, you know, I think those little wins, I love little wins. I love seeing people. Um, I'm one of those people that gets a big kick out of seeing someone else achieve whatever their goal is and like, um, probably to a detriment of my own self that, you know, I'm forever trying to help other people achieve their goals and I forget about myself. I feel like that's quite common with OTs. <laughs> yeah, Again, we could help to us. a detriment. Yeah. Where yeah. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day about exactly that, the fact that, yeah, we're really good at looking after others and seeing what's wrong and helping out with others and, you know, being of guidance to others. And then when something happens to us, everything just falls apart. And we're like, oh, I don't know how to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just put it in a box and you're like, yeah, I'll deal with that issue later. I'll, I'll sleep later or I'll go and do the, the mental health strategy that I know that I should be doing later because I've got to go help six more it people. It can wait. There. I'm yeah. busy. <laughs> so true. So, when you, so when you went straight into private practice, was that your own private practice or did you go and work for someone else to start with or...? No, so I've been working for someone else. Um, so I kind of went the opposite way to a lot of other people. So I, I subcontracted first and was out in the community. Um, I did a prac with an awesome OT and then she's like, I've got a whole bunch of clients. Do you want to keep seeing them and, and I'll pay you for it? And I was like, yep, sure. Um, then quickly realised that driving all over Sydney 
um, was really taxing on my mental health. Um, and I sort of went, mm, no, that I need even to sound fun when you say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I've, I driven in, think I've driven in Sydney once and I'm like, no, nah, I'm done. Yeah. I'd see like three kids a day. And again, I was a new grad, so I didn't understand the whole concept of scheduling or appointment booking or timing or any of those sorts of things. I was just like, I'm happy to go see people. Um, and I'd sometimes see like three people a day, but I'd be out from like nine in the morning till six at night. And I was just like, this isn't, this doesn't make sense. And this you've isn't- driven a total of four kilometres and sat in traffic the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, yes. Uh, I learned, I look, I'm really good at driving around Sydney now. I know I can get around really easily and I can, you know, I see other people and they're like, oh, I need Google Maps. I'm like, no, this is how you get to Western Sydney. This is how you get to the inner West. This is easy. Um, and then I went and I was like, no, I think I need to go and be in a clinic and understand what that whole process is like. So I went and worked, um, again, it was about an hour away from my house with no traffic. Um, there were days when it was two hours and I was like, what am I doing? What Again, am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Who would ever live there? I, and, oh, I know. Oh my and it was, it was a really interesting job. It was an awesome OT clinic with lots of different um, OTs with different experience. And I got to work across kind of two of their clinics. So I got to see like two different demographics, which was really cool. Um, and then I sat in traffic, like I said, for two hours one day. And I went, no, this isn't good. Like, this is like, it's all well and good for the job to be there, but that's not good for my mental health. If I'm traveling two hours there and an hour back, I may as well drive to Canberra. Like <laughs> that's the same distance. Um, and so I sort of went, no, nah, that's, that's not good for my mental health. So I found something a little bit closer to home. It's now about half an hour away from home um, on the Northern beaches. And it's awesome. It's really cool. It's a multidisciplinary clinic too, which I really like. Um, so it's got psychologists and speech therapists and teachers, um, and it's really the whole clinic's ethos is about early intervention and looking more at the preschool ready set school sort of kids, but we get, you know, kids ranging all the way from two to 17, 18, some of them. Um, and that's been really, really cool. Been working there three days a week, um, for the last three years and then was there full time before that, um, and yeah, it's been really cool. Been really, really cool. Really like it. I feel uh, the more you say, it, the more I'm like, we are the same person because I've had the same thing. Like my first job uh, when I was out of uni, I was living in Brisbane, but I was working on the Gold Coast, so it was like an hour and <laughs> hour and a bit each way. Wow. So I'm like, I think it was about an hour and a half if if there's traffic. Although that going that way as opposed to the opposite direction, uh, there was a lot less traffic. Mm. Um, but yeah, that got to the point where. Like I really love that job, but I'm like, this is like this is a big chunk of my day and like I'm literally getting home and I'm just tired from driving that much. Plus like driving around during work as well, because it was a mobile like we were mobile for a lot of it. So I'm like I'm literally spending half of my twenty four hours in my day sitting in a car. Uh and I'm like, this isn't cool. Um, and eventually moved back to Brisbane and then it was only 45 minutes each way. Yeah. And I'm like, and I was going a fraction of the distance because all of a sudden I had traffic to deal with as well. <laughs> and eventually I'm like, I can't deal with this. So I moved back to Townsville <laughs> where there is no traffic. And Amazing. I'm driving the same distance now that I was in Brisbane and it's taking me l- a third of the time. Yeah. 
It's amazing how how just that commute to work can affect your mental health mm. and affect your your love for whatever job that you do. Like I think that's, you know, from a mental health perspective, even thinking about like just how that can affect, you know, sitting in a car and then like that will wait before you get to work almost or the hour that you have to get up or the hour that you get home that you then don't get to, you know, do your social things or see your friends mm. or go to the gym or go out to dinner or whatever or just chill out and watch TV. Like that, I think in, as human beings, like, and again, we talk about, you know, we're not really good at looking after ourselves. I think that even just taking that time to shorten the amount of time that I spend going to work or you spend going to work, mm. I think even that is mental health care in itself, right? You're prioritising where you work mm. based on how far away it is. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like it takes a, a toll or did take a toll on my mental health purely and simply because like I was too tired. I was wrecked. By the time I got home, I didn't want to do anything. So yeah. like I wasn't catching up with friends. I wasn't pretty much leaving the house once I got home because once I got home, I sat on the couch and just went, because I'd been up since you know five o'clock that morning, and I wasn't getting home till six thirty. Oh God! So like it's a big day. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, now I live close enough where if I forget something at work, I can go back and get it. Like it's literally fifteen <laughs> minutes away. So awesome. it, and I've got all this free time, and I'm like, what do I do? I know <laughs> I'll start a podcast, and that'll take up all of my free time. Yeah. Well, because you've got to stay occupied, don't you? Isn't that oh, the whole... Oh, I like what you did there. I like what you did there. <laughs> oh, I love a good Nice. Pun. Nice. I think we've just found our <laughs> new marketing manager. Oh, dear. So you started an app. I How did. did that come about? Oh, my gosh. I feel like now you've... Like, we've relived how I started occupational therapy. It's probably the same. We're going to relive all of these traumas for you today. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I think, you know, in private practice, time is precious, right? It's, um, you know, you you see clients so that you can, clients, participants, consumers, whatever we want to call them, um, to, to keep the money coming through the door. Um, and so I think in private practice, there's a big focus on seeing as many clients as you can so that, you know, you can keep the doors open and keep all those sorts of things. But um, I think for me anyway, one of the biggest things that I noticed was the documentation is just getting out of hand. Like obviously NDIS, we've got all these giant reports to write, which personally I don't think they should be that long, but anyway, that's a personal thing. Um, and then you've got your case notes that you've got to write, your emails that you've got to get to teachers. You've got to communicate with the other people on the care team because, you know, little Johnny with autism has an OT, a speechy, a physio, a psychologist who else is on his team because he's got access to the NGIS, which is awesome, but he's now got all these people that mum's in charge of, you know, communicating with. Um, and then, you know, and then there's, you know, trying to contact the parent, trying to get them to do the things that they want to do at home. Um, and then I read, I mean, you read all these different things, but I read this research article and it kind of hit me on the head and I was like, huh. And it was like an aged care population one. And it was like, Patients forget 40 to 80% of the information they hear in a medical practitioner's office the minute they leave. I don't, think, like, I don't even think that's aged care because I'm teaching communication at the moment. I'm pretty sure that's everyone. I'm fairly well, sure that stat sits with everyone. Well, And that's what I was like. And I was like then going, well, what about a mum who's got two kids in the room, 
one of them's got a disability, so he's not listening, and she's trying to wrangle him from trying to, you know, stop scaling the walls, and then we're trying to leave the session, and all I'm going is, can you remember to do, I don't know, for example, the, the riding homework and the bear walks is when you when you get a chance so that, you know, we can work on those core strength and those fine motor skills goals. Yeah, 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 cool, 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 off they go. And, or, you know, you write that piece of paper and then it gets shoved in the handbag and, and or, you know, dad's pocket, um, you know, and it's like this just this whole system doesn't work, right? It's like we're expecting stressed out people to remember really sometimes complex information and humans aren't good at memory. <laughs> like, we're just not. Um, and, yeah, I'm horrible. I have post-it notes, to-do lists, calendars, everything. Um, and then, yeah, so then I went and talked to a whole bunch of people and originally I was, oh, I still am a feeding therapist, um, and originally I thought, oh, I'll write a cookbook. Um, you know, I'll help my kids in my feeding, you know, therapy, do their feeding therapy homework at home by creating recipes that'll be really fun and really engaging. Um, and then I spoke to my dad who's, you know, who teaches MBAs in, in business schools. And he was like, yeah, cookbook's great, but it's not really a business and it's not really going to sustain you and make money. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks, dad. Um, and then... From that, I went and sort of was like, I was talking to a bunch of people. I was like, oh, maybe a blog, maybe a website where we can create a community, kind of like Facebook, but more for parents who need help with therapy and all those sorts of things. Go back, have the have the good old chinwag with the parents. Again, it's not going to make you any money, Laura. Like, <laughs> this is this is you helping people without helping yourself. Um, and so then coffee conversation after coffee conversation with lots of different people sort of, started getting into the startup ecosystem in, in Sydney and then the tech ecosystem. And I sort of went, huh, there's lots of project management tools for tech teams, for remote teams, for all these different sort of organisations that don't necessarily work together. What's in the health space? I get ads for them every time I open YouTube. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and then I sort of, I went looking and I was like, hey, but maybe someone's created an app that can help me do home programs I sort of moved from feeding to like all of therapy and I sort of went actually no this is a problem across everything um I couldn't really find anything in the OT space I was like I can find some physio apps but they're mainly for adults nothing really for pediatrics I can find some games that parents can download but that's not going to be my treatment strategies that I'm relaying to the mm. parent and so I really couldn't find anything so I entered into a startup accelerator program which is Feels like the same sort of concept as like Shark Tank. I was going to say, it sounds, it sounded like Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah, it's called She Starts. And it was amazing. It was for women who had deep industry knowledge, but no technical background, who want to build a technical product to have social impact. And I was like, oh, that's me. Um, and so I went in, honestly, with the napkin idea. I had a piece of paper and I said, this is what I want to create for OTs. I want to create a home programming or home exercising, home exercise programming app that will help pediatric OTs send home exercises to kids and then track their progress from a distance to know when they've done it so that they can be prepared for the next session. Um, and they, I, well, I got in, um, they had like 500 applicants and then they selected eight, um, eight people to start companies. And luckily I was selected into that, which was awesome. Um, and so I, then six months I don't later. I know if it was luck. Pretty sure it was a bit more than that. <laughs> Bit of hard work. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely hard work. Definitely there was a lot of late nights and a lot of surveys and sending out. I think I sent 100 surveys in a week 
to therapists and parents and people that I knew and I was like hey this is what I think I'm going to do and I got all these responses and people going oh hell yeah this is exactly what we need this is this is useful for physios this is useful for speech this is useful for OTs psychologists everything and I was like right this is bigger than I thought it was going to be <laughs> you know what have I got going, myself in for <laughs> pretty much still do that every single day um which no it's exciting I love it I absolutely love figuring out digital health I think um digital health has a huge place in healthcare as to improving access improving um you know affordability like just especially access and affordability like those two things are huge in healthcare um and digital is such an easy medium when used right to help both of those things so yeah so did the program for six months and sort of came out the other end with what they call as an MVP, which is the minimal viable product. So like a prototype. Um, and so it was an app and this kind of very basic web platform that a therapist could jump on. And we'd put about 200 activities on it and they could jump on, choose one of our activities and send it to um, a participant, add some photos or videos in the session. And then the parent could tick it off on their web platform. And it, it worked. It was awesome. Um, very quickly realized that parents needed to be reminded. So they needed notifications um, and they needed all these things. So as we sort of kept building, and I always think of like startups and tech world is very similar to OT and therapy planning. It's actually like the same concept of here's my problem. I might think of a solution and then I'll work with you on that solution. And then we'll see what problems would come out of that solution. Yeah, yeah. And we'll try and adjust and fix it and we'll keep going and, and sort of iterate as we go. Um, and that's what it, what we've been doing and sort of, what are we now, three years into it, 2018 was when I got into the program. Three years into it, we now have a mobile app for therapists, a mobile app for participants. We have a web platform that has dashboards and graphs and all sorts of really cool things like completion circles. And, um, and we're really like starting to track and there's, now, so there's 200 activities that we leave on the app. And I think last count was, I think between 850 and 900 activities are on the platform now because therapists are now able to add their own and create their own libraries. And um, we've got really interesting, we've got some ABA therapists on the platform. We've got a craniosacral therapist on the platform. She's a craniosacral OT um, because the platform's super adaptive and anyone can jump on it mm. and create their own activities basically any therapist can can jump on and, and go hey here's my library of activities that I use with my participants I'm going to um yeah create it and keep it and and there it is forever sort of thing so do they like if a therapist jumps on there and creates sort of their library of things do they have that to like draw on for other clients and that sort of stuff yeah yeah, so they create their own sort of, we call it a clinic portal. And on that clinic portal, they can upload different sorts of activities. And, and so the cool thing is, is if you're working in an organisation like you and I, if you and I were working in an organisation together, if I created activities, you and I would both be able to share those. So it kind of works as like a training tool for new grads. Um, and I know like the new grads that I work with are always going, oh, Laura, have I got any new gym ball games that I can use with this kid? And I go, log on to Theratrack and you'll see the list of ones that I've created or, um, you know, different things like that. So it means, you know, every therapist is different. They treat differently. They've got different ideas. They've got, and I think that was the thing previously, like, oh, there's this great gamified app that does. Yeah, but it only does one thing. Yeah, and it didn't do the whole gamut of all the stuff that I do. It didn't have all the feeding therapy activities or all the 
emotional regula regulation stuff that I'd, you know, built up in my brain over the years. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, that's cool. I really like it and it's really fun to use and, yeah. So what's been the, I guess, the the hardest part about going through the whole startup process? Wearing two hats. Oh, my gosh. Like wearing my OT hat and then wearing CEO, founder, tech founder hat. Um, I remember a couple of, like maybe it was within the first 18 months, um, I had a mentor that was like, you've got to stop thinking about this from just the OT. Like there's the OT, there's the participant, and then there's the business owner who ends up buying the platform. Um, and I sort of kept getting stuck in like, oh, well, this is my problem. This is, this is, this is how I would solve it as an OT. And I had to really step back and learn like, oh, actually there's a whole bunch of different problems that the director or the, or the practice principal is really thinking about, which is compared to the OTs and, and sort of thinking about our messaging. It was actually a big like aha moment of like, oh, our messaging all on the platform doesn't tell you why this is actually going to save you money or save you time. It's just telling you how awesome it is for for your your clients and how it's going to improve their progress. Yep. And the minute that I stepped back and went, oh, if I change the messaging to target the person and actually step back out of being an OT and sort of step into the business mindset, we got a lot more users understanding that, oh, actually, this is here to save me time. This is here to save me my admin costs. This is here so that my therapists don't have to stay back after work and hopefully not get burnt out. Or that my therapist, maybe if, you know, if they're spending all this extra time on admin, if they can get it back, maybe they can see another client. You know, I'm not all for like compounding lots of, the, lots of clients on therapists, but, um, you know, maybe for that sort of reason, you know, if, if someone's going, oh, I'm really struggling with four but if I save all of my admin time, I can see five in a day or something like that. Um, it just was really interesting switching that mindset. And I think, I know I'm still working on it. I still get stuck in OT land. You, know, you can't help it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, yeah, I think that was the biggest challenge. So, because I've heard that, like, the, I know a lot of, quite a few OTs who are also sort of private practice and business owners and that sort of stuff. And that's, one thing that I've heard them say a billion times is, oh, why isn't this stuff get taught in OT school? So <laughs> where do you think, obviously you said your dad teaches for like MBAs and stuff that obviously would have been mm. a, a very big help, but was that the main area that you sort of learnt how to get into that mindset or where did you actually pick that up, do you think? No, I mean, I've always been interested in business. Like, this is going to sound funny. Back when I was like a five-year-old, you know, my sister and I had the lemonade stands and we had the the garage sale stands. Like we were constantly, probably just because we wanted lollies or something like that. But, um, you know, we were constantly what trying to- What else does to... a five-year-old want money? <laughs> exactly. What else are they going to buy? Um, but I think about that back then and I'm like, oh, I was like starting my own little shops and I was starting my own little things and- um. So I guess part of, I guess it's maybe it's a mindset of like, I've always been one of those people that I love running my own show. I love making my own decisions. I love um, creating new things and coming up with new ideas. And my mum was always like, oh, you real people. It's really hard for, for you to be told what to do. Like, yeah, that's probably true. Um, and then on the other side, I mean, it's it's reading and it's, it's podcasts. I love podcasts at the moment. Um, they're just 
there's such a breadth of information and like I'm such an auditory learner like I think I think I can't remember who you were talking to at about maybe it was Kwaku Kwaku um but about how podcasts are just such an awesome resource of free learning um uh, and how much could knowledge. have been I've said that to many people <laughs> but it I'm is biased though. it is though and it's such an awesome way to kind of learn about different things and and then I mean, it's obviously reading books and, and that sort of thing. I will say She Starts was awesome. It was like a six-month mini business course. So we did things like cash flow management. Um, they had guys from like I think it was ANZ or one of the accounting software things come in and, you know, talk to us about how do you run an accounting management software system? How do you run marketing ads on social media how do you do all that and so in that program that was a lot of support for that I wish I do wish the OT programs supported OTs more on business um I was actually having a conversation with someone about this the other day and they were like yeah but there's no more room in the OT course like if you added <laughs> you probably what are you gonna take out <laughs> exactly it's like if you added business management into the OT course what do you take out? Because it's you've only got four years for an undergraduate or two years for a master's. Like, and do you take something out? I don't know. I don't think many people would do it if it was like a five-year undergrad. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh, no. It'd be like, it'd turn into like a medicine course or something. Yeah. But, but I mean, I don't know. I, I think the space is there. Like, people can do like, an MBA or something to that effect, like uh, as a postgrad with OT. And there's a lot of OTs I know that just learn it along the way from different programs or, you know, business mentors and that kind of stuff. Like there's a skill set, like it's not a skill set that requires a university qualification unlike occupational therapy. So like there's other options to get into it, but it's definitely a good space for OTs to move into and I was saying to someone the other day um like a lot of oh it was yeah I know who it was um the uh a lot of the really I guess innovative new stuff that I'm seeing from the profession itself is coming from private practice like there's Mm -hmm. people that are starting really really occupation-based private practices and doing some really really cool stuff but it's all private practice like Mm. so if we want the the profession to evolve Mm. into a lot of these more innovative spaces and do really cool things like essentially live up to its potential Mm. then i think private practice is where it's gonna happen um i know that up until this point because I just did a presentation last week where i ended up have to in preparation for it ended up doing it sort of deep dive into the history of the profession around the world. So I know that the vast majority of how we've evolved to this point has been hospital and sort of medical model based. Mm. But I do feel like the from here out, if we want to keep sort of evolving, um, it, it's going to be private practice. Yeah. Well, I think as well, like, there's some stat in the NDIS that like 50% of – therapists in the NDIS of sole traders or something crazy like that like I think people are realizing oh I can work for myself I can have flexibility of my hours and I can make my own decisions um I mean it's why 
everyone was like, oh, you should go and, you know, talk to big enterprise like in the startup ecosystem. They're like, get a big customer and it'll, you know, help you then go and raise money for investment. I said, no, big customers in, in healthcare are your NGOs and your hospitals. And that's going to take me two to three years to even break down the smallest walls. Whereas, you know, you go to these private clinics where there's one director and she's got between he or she has got between two and maybe 30 staff mm. she makes the she or he makes the decisions they decide less red right tape. then and there so much less red tape so much easier to implement implement processes and then once the bigger organizations start to see oh you're making these changes here in this small scale hey that we can actually do that and that's exactly how it's happened for us i think majority of our customers when I started were sole traders. They were just OTs trying to look for better ways to communicate with their participants, to have better engagement and to actually improve their workflow. And then it went from sole traders to small clinics. And then now we've started going through the enterprise crazy sale fund thing. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say I see on LinkedIn, you go into all of these like big events and meeting all yeah. of these big wigs from different companies and that sort of stuff. Is the... And I kind of know the answer to this because I'm pretty sure I've already asked you, but <laughs> is the the purpose of those kinds of events like sort of direct sales or what are you looking to get out of those like bigger, oh, I don't even know what the event was the other day. It was, I know you had a stall. The telehealth, oh, the National Telehealth Conference. That was the one. Yeah, we got um, asked to be the innovation champion, which I thought was really cool, really, really cool. Um, and look, if you were to ask me in, in 2018, 2019, when we had a stall at the OT conference, which, you know, some of your listeners might have come and said hi to us back then when we were really, back you know, new to the Sydney. space. Back in Sydney. Um, and face-to-face, which was awesome. Um, that was the last conference that we had face-to-face in Australia. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so if, if you would have asked me back then, I went into that going sales, I'm going to go to these places. I'm going to make all these sales and it's going to be fantastic. I learned very fast that conferences are about brand awareness and making connections and finding the right people to talk to. Um, <laughs> that was just a big aha moment for me after the OT conference, which was fine. Fine. It was, it was really good. We met, I met so many OTs from all over Australia, like from Western Australia, from Tassie, um, you know, OTs that I never thought that I'd probably ever get in front of. So that was really, really cool. Um, But yeah, so most of those conferences now are more around brand awareness, sharing our message and going, hey, this is a different way that we can actually provide therapy. Um, Because I think until people see what the platform can do and how it works, it's really hard to kind of imagine the a different way of doing therapy i know that sounds really funny but mm. um this is the way that we've <laughs> it's probably the same conversation this is the way that we've done things forever and it works why would we change it um you know that that age-old conversation and i think once we can get an app into someone's hands and, I, and my favorite my favorite saying from therapists is like oh my gosh that was not that scary or that was not that hard <laughs> <laughs> I, I've had so many therapists tell me that they pick up the the app and they you know it takes them two months to to take it into the therapy session because they just don't know how it's going to work and then they walk out of the therapy session and I either get a message or I'll get a call or I'll get an email or you know if it's at the clinic where I work oh that wasn't that scary and it worked yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the whole point but 
it's just it's really interesting like behavior change is something that I'm really keen to learn more about and how you know we change the the behaviors that we do as humans into new behaviors and why that causes us so much anxiety like oh it's so interesting um and find the answer to that you'll be a millionaire okay (laughs) challenge accepted I'll let you know in you know a couple of years if I found the found the golden answer. But I don't. I mean, like I think that's that's every startup's issue is behavior change because you're trying to change, especially when you're looking at innovation and you're looking at changing the way that it's been done for forever or adapting the way or creating a new pathway. You know, it's humans don't like change. Like we like things to stay the same, and that's okay. Um, to a certain extent, (laughs) it's not. See, there's the helping in me. There's the, oh, no, it'll be okay. It's fine. Take your OT Um, hat off, put your business hat back on, and let's continue. (laughs) See, I can't help it. Um, But, yeah, it's like it's that, it's those little changes. And I see it across the whole ecosystem of, like, different startups. Like, I've definitely connected with so many really interesting startups and, and tech tech entrepreneurs in this space and they all say the same thing like I've taken this thing to this person I know exactly how it's going to help them but why won't they pick up the app or why won't they download it or why won't they use it with their client or their end user or whatever it is and you just go it's hard um but yeah so yeah I don't know where I was going with that one but yeah no no so with with, behavior change so with the um obviously this is something that's very innovative to ot and probably to health i'm not sure have you found any other industries any other areas where this kind of thing has happened or they've there's similar things for other areas of life yeah i mean it's i guess the thing is the project management tools so there's things like I don't know if you're familiar with things like Slack and Asana mm. and te- um, Teams Monday.com. and Trello, Monday.com. Uh, so many ads for that on my on my Facebook. Um, but all of those programs in the tech world, right, they help teams work remotely and they help them manage projects and they help them communicate. Um, and they work really well. Like, I mean, my team at the moment, where are we based? We're, I've got two in Hong Kong, one in Brisbane, one in Melbourne and another developer in Sydney. Um, and my developer in Brisbane, I've never met face-to-face. <laughs> We've always done everything online. Um, he's awesome and it works really well. And I go, okay, well, if I can communicate with you, my wants and needs, uh, you know, we can do demos online, I can set projects, I can set timelines. Why can't that work in therapy? Why can't that work in healthcare? Because it's a similar concept, right? You have a team of people working around someone with a disability or a healthcare challenge. You all need to communicate about the things that you're talking about. And the person on the other end has a project or a therapy plan that they need to complete so that they can get better. It's For me, I see that as the same sort of concept. And in the tech world, it works really well. Like you've got there's huge tech companies like Atlassian and um, Microsoft and Google who work across the world mm. and they seem to work really well. Um, somehow we have this ecosystem of healthcare that's just siloed and broken and not no one talks to each other, 
but it's tricky. It's really tricky to communicate across different platforms and yeah, integrate and just all those things. I could definitely see that. Have you noticed any change since the, the pandemic and the whole like mass transition to telehealth? Has there been any sort of change in that aspect of health? <gasps> huge. Holy bananas, huge. Um, bananas. Yeah. That's a new one. <laughs> Trying not to swear on your program. Oh, um, okay. I probably will. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, work around kids. That's what we do all the time. Um, but, yeah, no. So in, when was it? March last year when, you know, we all, we all in Sydney anyway, we went into this lockdown for sort of I think it was about three months and we were doing telehealth from home. There was a huge influx. I think we grew by 500% in the space of three months um, of just people reaching out, trying to find new solutions. And I think what it did for therapists was go, oh, telehealth isn't that scary. That's just me having a conversation with someone through my computer like I do with everybody else in my family. I just somehow can't do this with my clients. Um, And then they sort of went, well, I need a way, like telehealth is great, but how do I do things post-session? How do I hand you those worksheets? How do I email you those things or send you those things securely without sitting there and, you know, I had therapists saying to me, oh, I'm doing all these telehealth sessions, but then I'm spending three hours sending emails to parents after work. And I went, no, that's... No. (laughs) That's the telehealth equivalent of that drive to work that we were talking about before. It is. It is. And it's just, and it was sort of something I was like, no, we can send home programs. Like I think the fastest home program I've sent in my app took me two minutes. I timed it. And I sent three activities with three photos that I uploaded um, and customized nudges. And that was, yeah you know, more complicated if you add more instructions or more videos or more photos or whatever. But, you know, three minutes, if you've got eight kids a day, what's that? Three eights are 24 minutes. If you can do everything in 24 minutes versus three hours, like that's huge. I mean, that's your, that's your drive to and from work sort mm. of thing, right? That's that's the equivalent. Um, and so, yeah, we spoke to a lot of therapists back then about how do we save them time? How do we do that? And then we landed a big... NDIS customer, which I'm under an NDA, but it'll come out in the next few months to to everyone else who who we've signed, which is awesome. Like I just want to tell everyone because it's really <laughs> cool, and I just sort of it's very hard to not. Um, but yeah, so we signed them last year with the idea that we developed a whole bunch of features that just kind of pushed us into the next level of customization and. Um, you know, working not just with kids, but with adults as well. And how do we help? Yeah, not just that population. And so when all these features come out, there's some integrations coming out with uh, an organization called Lumery, which is one of the case management software systems, again, with the whole whole ethos of trying to save people time. Um, so when you save your, send your home program, it'll end up in your case notes um, so that that's you don't cool. have to retype it or resave it or yeah. whatever. Yeah, that's um, cool. Yeah, and then hope, and then the other end of it is trying to also send in the reports into case notes, so that when you open up your, you know, client's case note before their next session, you go, like, oh, they did this much of their home program, easy peasy. I can, I know what plan I need for the next session, or they didn't do anything, and now I know what my plan is going to be. Um, but vice versa, just helping therapists get more knowledge. But yeah, so that's all the features that we did last year. So we're almost at the end of that product development phase. We've been a bit quiet on the social media and. Um, 
marketing side of things because I wanted to get all these features up and running and out and out to everyone um but yeah people will probably see lots more ads on social media about us in the next few months nice. <laughs> will be the new monday.com on your on your facebook that's it they're trash dot <laughs> co yep uh you you talked about before like some of those other software programs about managing teams. Does Theratrack currently allow like a, you you spoke about just then it being able to manage the I guess the ongoing relationship or the out of session relationship between the therapist and the client? Uh, does it have the capacity at present to do that for like say if there's multiple therapists working with the same client? Like is it multiple therapists being able to? have input or do programs and see what each other's doing with that same client or is it strictly yeah. sort of the one-on-one at present? No, so it's multidisciplinary now um, and that actually came out of the pandemic with enough. I was in the start of the pandemic, I was like, no, this is an OT app. This is this is my sole focus. My blinders are on. I'm going to create an OT app. And then we had, you know, speeches and ABA therapists and craniosacral therapists. Hey, can we create programs too, which then – flipped another problem on its head and I guess this is that planning thing of like oh there's two therapists at one clinic they're both working with the same client they both want to send home programs how do we help them work together so yeah we we turned we made Theratrack multidisciplinary maybe in like May last year I think around then um and my sort of big hairy legal audacious goal I guess in a sense is being able to then connect Theratrack accounts across clinics so knowing that, you know, 50% of the workforce is sole traders and they work by themselves and probably have different case management software systems and notes and things, um, we can technically work on the legally part, but um, technically share data across Theratrack accounts so that therapists who are working at different organisations can see and see what yeah. treatment plans have been sent to that that participant. So that's kind of on my, on my horizon goal of how do we... Um, how do we help manage that? It's like the e-health record does it for your medical information. Mm. Um, you know, you can go to one hospital and see all the things. You can go to another hospital and see all, all your other things and, and clinicians can do that and see what's going on there. Um, so we can do it. I know that it's possible, possible yeah. <laughs> technically. Um, I just have to make sure that, you know, and I think this is the biggest thing when it comes to digital health is patient data is, oh, it's, I mean, it's a commodity now. Someone said the other day that patient data is more, um, you can make more money out of patient data than you can out of stealing credit cards. You can make more money out of patient data than you can treating patients. <laughs> Unfortunately. The yes. irony of that is... Oh, that's terrifying. I mean, that we live in a, an information as commodity world, like social media. I know. You know, Facebook's not free. Twitter isn't free. Your data is the currency there. Yeah. So that's why you get targeted ads because all of your data is being used to put through an algorithm to work out, oh, maybe this person will like this exact thing. So, yeah. like, with the, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. But no. for once, with patient data, there's actually legislation around protecting it, unlike everyone else. <laughs> Exactly. And when that's the thing, and that's that's my main concern is making sure that we're protecting people's data. But if you can help, you know, say a speechy at one organization and an OT in another organization, find out what, what each of those therapists is working on without them spending two months trying to email backwards and forwards or two months trying to find a phone call where they can actually just have a conversation about, hey, what did you do in that session? 
the therapist can jump on and see a video of, oh, they're doing these speech sounds or they're doing these OT activities. Hey, I can incorporate those two things into my session and get a, you know, double benefit. I think all therapists, I mean, I'm biased on this one, but I think if I had all of that knowledge and access to those things that my clients were working on outside of my organisation, that would make my session so much cooler and so much more seamless and, you know, have that full multidisciplinary approach where everyone's working towards the same thing Mm. rather than, oh, I'm working on muscle strength and I'm working on speech sounds, but how do we bring those two things together? Because you can. Um, But, yeah, so that's that's my horizon goal in the next sort of six to 12 months as to how we do that. That excites me because I could see that literally being a sort of all-encompassing client management thing for everything. Yeah. And then if you've got multiple, like you said, multiple sort of businesses that are subscribed through that, like you could use that for your referrals and Mm -hmm. it'll all be through the one system that I'm I'm a big uh, proponent of like – there's a, a theory within design of sort of reducing clicks. So essentially yeah. it's the same with anything. Like you're trying to reduce barriers to entry and then we do it as, yeah. as OTs with anything. Like we're yeah. talking about change before and people are going to be resistant to change until you reduce those barriers to entry. Once the barriers mm-hmm. to entry become less than, I guess, the the scariness, then all of a sudden people are willing to overcome or tolerate that, that discomfort until the change is made. So yeah. I... With even basic websites, I'm like, if I have to do more than a couple of clicks to find the information, I'm not looking. Like, I don't care. I don't care yeah. that much. Whereas, yeah. that's why, like, even the very first thing, if you go to like Occupy, this is this is the things that I think about. This is the things that keep me mm. up at night. <laughs> if you go to Occupy, the very first thing you're gonna see is the latest episode, and you can play it right from there. One click, done. Like yeah. that's that's why it's designed like that, not because yeah. it's oh this is the way it came. Like that's what I went looking for and how I designed it. Like I yeah. like having all of that information readily accessible. Yeah. Um, and same with apps. Like I've tried all of those different uh, like management software things. Pretty much everything we mentioned <laughs> except Monday dot com on principle because they keep <laughs> advertising to me, so I won't try it. But I've tried them all, and I don't like any of them. I yeah. find them. There was one that was being touted as the most amazing. It was Notion. And I got in there and I went, this is ridiculous. Like I essentially have to create my own database inside it before I can use it. I'm like, I'm going to spend a week building this thing before it's even useful. Like this to me is, there's too many barriers to entry to use this. And yeah, okay, once you've got it all set up, yeah, okay, that might be cool. Then it might work for you. But I'm not spending a week building this thing. Yeah. Some of the others oh, aren't too bad, but then again, sometimes they go too simple. Like yeah. Trello, I don't mind, but I I like all of my I like my apps to be integrated as well. So mm-hmm. like even now like I've got my Evernote, my Dropbox, all of the apps that I use for essentially data storage and organization, I like to be mm-hmm. organized. I use yeah. a specific calendar because it integrates with Zoom, even though I yeah. obviously as we found out this afternoon, <laughs> still can stuff that up. <laughs> Uh, I was late. I was late. To, I was late to this podcast. For anyone yeah. that's very confused by that, um, <laughs> but like all those sort of re- reduced clicks, reduced barriers to entry. Mm-hmm. Like I can set up or schedule a podcast without opening Zoom. I just make the calendar invite, click add a Zoom call. It's done. Like that's yeah. that's easy. 
Um, and that's, that's the, the design aesthetic. And when I say design aesthetic, it's like the, I guess the operational aspect of it, not Mm. the way it looks. I don't overly care about how it looks, but yeah, that's the, how I've done tech stuff or preferred my tech stuff like my whole life. Cause that's, that's the design aesthetic that a lot of people push. And it's awesome to hear that like this, this, this app that you've developed, this program, this database that you've developed is essentially doing that for specifically, well, not specifically anymore, but in particular for <laughs> OTs. Yeah. Obviously, there's other, other therapists that can use it now, but yeah. I'm still going to say for OTs because I'm biased and I like OTs. I know. Me too. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Like when I started the startup program, I didn't know, and, I mean, I now know what they are, but a user experience designer. Um, I didn't know what those were and I didn't realise there's a whole profession of people and, you know, naivety, but to me back then because I worked in a private clinic and didn't know anything about the tech world, but there's a whole profession of people, their job is to help you design a better experience of something. Um, And now that I know what they are, I have two on my team and they're absolute guns and I will never get rid of them because, like, they make up what? we're six people they make up a third of my team um because i think the user experience and the design of a product especially a tech tool is so important to reduce that friction um to reduce those clicks like clicks are so important like the amount of clicks it takes to get to some point in an app um there's like there's heaps of studies on on if you have too many clicks people will actually just delete your app and they won't use it and they, they'll they'll stop you know, if they don't see a purpose in the amount of clicks that they're doing, they'll just go, mm, yeah, not having this anymore. Um, but like, you know, throw, throw it back on the healthcare world. And maybe this is my naivety in, in the private practice space, but are there user experience designers in healthcare? I hope not, because if there is, they're doing a terrible job. <laughs> maybe we need to find some to get into healthcare because like, I mean, there must be in hospitals and stuff like that. But For tech or for health in general? For health in general. I mean, because imagine if you had some someone, you'd probably need like 7,000 of them. But, you know, a a team of user experience designers to go into hospital and absolutely like go, hold on a second, this whole workflow doesn't work. This whole um, management system doesn't work. And this is why. And then people go, "Uh uh-huh. And then they go, how do we change it? How do we improve it? I mean, there must be. There must be people that do that. And then they go, it'll cost money. And the health service goes, we're out yeah let's keep doing things the way we've been doing things for forever because they've worked and we're not going to change um i i was thinking more from the tech side of it because like where i've worked mental health up here uh has Mm. been on digital records for since Mm. i since i graduated um and then the rest of the hospital service has literally only changed over to digital records in probably the last three or four years I think it was just yeah. rolling out when I left clinical, so that would have been two thousand, probably about as long as you've as long as Theratrack's been around, about the same time. Wow! Um, but I remember doing the training on this new system and this new system, this high tech like digital records thing, and it was the clunkiest, most complex. Oh I'm like, I, 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 it drove me nuts just learning how to use it. I'm like, there's yeah. so many things that you need to go into and like stuff you were repeating in different aspects of the program. And I'm like, this is so clunky. 
and oh, you're working with a health workforce that for the large, and this is not throwing shade, but for the large part are fairly not overly tech literate and you're mm-hmm. making this super, like I understand that there's certain things that need sort of checks and balances and, you know, you need to tick yeah. this box to ensure this and blah, blah, blah. But like that was extreme. Um, oh my gosh. And even the mental health system, which was a whole nother system, <laughs> it's a completely different system that had been working, oh, albeit not amazingly well, but had been working for a decade. Yeah. Had only just gone through an update, which I had been a part of providing feedback for, to, again, simplify it and reduce the friction, reduce the barrier, mm. reduce the clicks, um, so there wasn't so much repetition in people actually using it because the in a lot of instances especially for people that you know weren't super fast typers or weren't super computer savvy entering notes and points of service and stuff on the electronic records took longer than just handwriting oh gosh so i'm like that's that's not a good thing like i understand it's all well and good for those that now don't have to file bits of paper but for the clinicians on the ground that are doing the actual therapy and then having to record it, it's keeping people late and it's taking so much time. It was taking so much time. They didn't actually factor this in to start with, but used to select uh, like essentially what you you were recording for each time period, so whether Mm. it was intervention, travel, et cetera. They had to put in one for actually writing the notes because they hadn't hadn't (laughs) put it in there to start with, but people were spending so much time doing it that it was ruining their kpis because there was nothing to log it against that's just crazy which is why i'm so glad to hear that there's something like this coming out that sounds like an absolute dream compared to the stuff that i've used in the past yeah well it's interesting right so like talking about that user experience i remember taking when i was doing the she starts program i had a ux designer with me back then And I said, look, I need you to come out and see a therapy center and just sit in a therapy session or just sit near a therapy session with a kid or with whatever, whoever's in the thing, just to kind of see what happens. I remember us walking out and he was like, holy crap, your job is crazy. And I was like, yeah. So the thing that I need needs to work with me. It needs to be seamless. It needs to save me time and it needs to not pull me away from the attention of the person that's in the room because the minute it pulls me away, like if it's a GP sort of setting, you know, GPs can turn around and start typing their notes and, and ignore you for five minutes and, you know, as an adult most, which they do. And and they can because as adults we can go, oh, yeah, that's cool. I know what you're doing. You're writing your notes and you're building me a prescription. But for kids, if I was to turn around like this, Hanging off a fan, flipped off a trapeze, climbed off a rock climbing wall, oh, the, the broken arm, whatever it might be, because you haven't thought about the safety of that kid. And so I think that like taking people into those, and I know they do this a lot in sort of the new startups that are coming through and the startups that are coming through, they take in the developers into hospitals. And there's a, where's the program? It was over in the US. Um, there's a hospital and they have like an innovation hub. So they take on startups in their innovation hub. And their first, I think, month of the program, they actually send the startups into the hospital and make them follow clinicians and make them 
learn what the workflow is of a clinician and understand, you know, where do you stop? When do you have a break? When do you, when are you standing? When are you sitting? When are you talking to people? When do you have five seconds to do? How do you write your notes? And then using that to then go, okay, well, this is what your workflow is now. How do I innovate around that? Rather than coming in with this whole new system, which I think, you know, you've told me you need the names of the patients and you need the the notes about what you've done, but I'm going to set it up in this thing because it looks pretty versus, oh, this is, this is the clicks and this is the process and the user journey that you do to get from point A to point B. And I thought that was just a really cool way of innovating in a hospital where they go, okay, we're going to partner with industry. We're going to look for the industry guys that are really interested in coming and being and having our hospital as a customer. But instead of just saying, hey, build a thing and we'll implement it, no, we're going to throw you into this hospital and you've got to learn with these guys for a month or whatever it is to, you know, learn all the nuances. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure in that program all the startups come out going, right, so we need to change half the things in our product because it doesn't fit with that clinician because they do X, Y, and Z. And I never even knew that that was a part of a clinician's job, Mm. you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm pretty sure the... Whoever designed the ones that I've used, I've never written a case note in their life because obviously there wasn't too much thought put into those ones, I don't think. I do like the idea, though, of using a a user experience. What do you call them? User experience. User experience designer. Designer. UX designer, they call them. Um, Just for, I guess, the, the clinical workflow, I guess. Yeah. But I think in a in a way they're kind of doing that within mental health with consumers. Like there's there's a lot of panels. Um, it, there's been a big push in the last throughout the last decade um, for more user input into a lot of the processes and that kind of stuff. I think it would be good to couple because i'm assuming those people that sort of work in that field that i kind of had assumed existed but i never knew it had a name um <laughs> it'd be like i'm assuming there's there's a lot of the sort of theoretical knowledge and stuff that those guys would have around improving those processes that i think coupled with like service user knowledge and clinician knowledge like grouping all of those together i think would be an epic way of overhauling any kind of therapeutic process. It'd be good for, you know, even not even big hospital systems, but even sort of maybe not necessarily mm-hmm. small businesses, but sort of moderate size, maybe small businesses as well, but even their user experience of their practice, I think implementing yeah. stuff around that would be amazing. Kind yeah. of like we've gone the other way now. We've, we're pulling things from the tech world to bring into the real world as opposed to pulling you from the real world, what's that real world? From the clinical world into the tech world. The real world. The real world. That's OT is the real world. That's fine. I was it's thinking more fun. like virtual tech, <laughs> virtual, and then here, real. I haven't quite got my head around this yet. Oh, it's all good. It's been a long but, day. Yeah, it has. It has. I totally agree with you. But yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I think it's just it's one of those things and one I guess one of those like aha moments of like doing this whole thing of startup and and the tech land of going huh yeah we definitely need those in healthcare like and um, I mean like maybe there maybe there are user experience designers in healthcare I just haven't found them or seen them or whatever but yeah it would be really cool if that was part of like you know the hiring process of a hospital or part of the hiring process of a new thing okay 
what is the patient experience going to be from point A to point B? But what is also the therapist experience from point A to point B? And what is the admin person's experience? Like look at all those people and how they interact and how they, you know, get into the hospital system or into the healthcare system and how do they get out? Because Maple I mean, bottlenecks. Yeah. It's like, well, it, I guess at the end of the day, isn't that the whole point of healthcare is to get out of the system <laughs> like at some point? On paper, you would say yes. <laughs> uh, in practice, yeah. sometimes it makes you wonder. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, if anyone yeah. has heard of this type of thing happening, do let us know because now I'm yeah. super curious. Um, yeah. It may have happened in another country uh, and maybe we just haven't heard of it. I'm not sure, but I think that's... Maybe. If you are a, a, a what do you say, a UX designer... Yeah, in maybe, healthcare. Maybe consider getting into healthcare if you're not already because I think we've just identified a wide open market for you. <laughs> yeah, but I'd also love to talk to you if you are a user experience designer in healthcare. Oh, my god! Get into healthcare cool. via Theratrack. There you go. Sold. Done. Easy peasy. Um, actually, speaking of that getting out of healthcare, that reminds me of something in this. It was really that business hat, OT hat. Um when I was going through the program, some someone, I think they're a business person of some kind, they sort of said to me, isn't your app going to make people go to therapy less? How is that going to make money? And I went, shouldn't we be going to therapy less? Isn't that the point? That's <laughs> the whole point. Um, but then it sort of, it made me also think about like, you know, how do you, how do you pitch a company that is designed to sort of be a preventative model of healthcare versus a sick model of healthcare, keeping people in the system? Um, but it was just like, a, oh, yeah, like that's the whole point of healthcare is, you know, there's there's a journey. Yes, you might need to dip in and out at certain points, but you should be able to hopefully get out of the system at some point, I would yeah, hope. Yeah, I had that realisation in a few conversations I've had with people around uh, certain uh, professions that seem to more build a reliance on them rather than build a, an independence. I won't name and shame here, but uh, I'm sure I've said it before on the podcast. But like that's where mm. health, we're one of very few professions in the world that we're actively trying to do ourselves out of a job. Now, it would never yeah. happen because like if you work in peds, people are still having babies. If you work in geriatrics, yep. people are still getting old. Like all these things are going to continually happen. Yeah. But we are, our whole purpose should be ideally to try and do ourselves out of a job. We want to make people better to the point where they don't need our service. There aren't too yep. many other businesses that sort of run on that model. Most people are trying to, like, if you think about Apple, Apple's not like selling you a product that you'll never need another Apple product again. They're selling you products no. that are going to hook you in and make you buy more Apple products. And I can say that looking at the number of Apple products I have like right in front of me, yep, it works. But that's not the model that we operate on, nor should we. So it, no. you're right. It's a, it's a very unique model. And I wonder if that mm. – I, I wonder – obviously, that would hopefully be, the I guess, the main goal of a lot of other health professions. But I wonder if that also – presents itself as a barrier just for business in general for private practice mm. in healthcare. Yeah. Well, because you have to be, I heard a cool term of profit for purpose. So like you still have to be a profitable business in private healthcare, right? You still have to have clients and participants coming through the door so that your doors can stay open. Um, but 
at the same time, it's kind of like, well, how do you then get them out of the door? And I mean, it's my forever argument with the NGIS is like, how do we get people off the NGIS, especially in early intervention? It's like, how do I get, like, this isn't a forever program for some people. Apparently it should we just be, change uh, the policy and kick them out. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't. And I mean, I'm still working on it, but I mean, I know I was talking to someone else about this the other day, but like, how do you get, I haven't heard of a lot of people that have gotten off the NDIS. They've gotten on the NDIS and they've gotten these awesome 12 month packages or two year packages. Even that's hard enough sometimes. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, look, that's, that's my hope for Therachak is that it can be that tool that helps people become more independent because why not use technology to do that? Why not use technology as a tool so that, like I said before, it's a free app for parents or for, for people that are accessing the system. They always have access to their platform. So mm-hmm. if their therapist graduates them, they still have access to their login details. They can still access all of their home programs for free. Um, and it's a still it's also really cool. It's a way for them to stay connected with their therapist so they yep. can send their therapist an email from our app. And it goes straight to them so they can stay connected if they want to. That's cool. But it's a way for them to have a database of like, these are all the therapy activities that I was prescribed. This is how I do them. These are my direct instructions from my therapist about how to do them. And this is how well I did them in the past. So this, if I need to jump back into the system, maybe I don't need to go directly back to therapy, but I can try and do things on my own a little bit to start off with. Because um, again, how do we get them out? Like, <laughs> There's more people coming in <laughs> and there's not enough of us. There's definitely not enough therapists to do the job that needs to be done. No, there's not, which surprises some people because I see a lot of people going, oh, my God, we're graduating so many OTs. I'm like, yeah, but I think the need need is far outweighing the... Are we, though? Well, we are in Queensland. There's 2,000 in Australia that graduate every year. We've got eight schools in Queensland now. I'm pretty sure they're all ours. Sydney, pick up your socks. We've got three schools in Sydney, I think. Yeah, you guys have got, I think, three or four in New South Wales. Yeah. eight in Queensland. Okay. So that's where all the OTs are coming from. But, yeah, I mean, like, even then, like, I guess this is is a bigger question, but, like, why are we only graduating 2,000 OTs a year? I don't want to teach more than that. It's hard. (laughs) But why are there more universities that teach it? Like... You know, I mean, I, I don't know what the number of lawyers that we graduate every year or the number of nurses that we graduate year, but I, I'm sure it's like way more than that. Um, I would two thousand just seems two thousand just seems like a really small number for what are we now? Twenty five million people. Twenty six. I don't know. Not very big. I don't know. But you know, I think. Yeah, there's 2,200 OTs in the New York City Schools Department. New York City's probably got a population of Australia, though. (laughs) True, true, true. But that's just one department. Like, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, this is, yeah, maybe we need to make OT more cool. Maybe more kids need to know about it so that they go, I want to aspire. Because, again, it comes back to that thing we were saying at the start. I didn't know what OT was before I started it, and it's such a common story that I hear and probably you hear as well. Of oh, I fell into this profession or someone told me that I, they think I'd be good at it, but I didn't know what it was, so it wasn't on my uni application or I transferred into it later on in life or whatever it might be. Like, you don't hear many kids going, oh, I really want to be an OT when I grow up. It's interesting, though, because 
I was the same like when I went through. I had no idea what it was, probably even until I graduated. And then I was only just working it out then. But nowadays, like I teach first years now, like first semester, like I'm at their very, one of their very first contacts at university was me, unlucky for them. Um, but it's a five first year, they're good. Yeah, that's it. If they get through me, <laughs> I'll be the gatekeeper. Um, but like, I'm surprised in the last few years how many of them come into it nowadays compared to back when I went through, mm. actually already knowing what OT is and like wanting, like they're coming into the course wanting to do OT, not because, oh, I, like you said, didn't get into physio or <laughs> I want to transfer yeah. into something else or I didn't know what I wanted to do because I just wanted to do something in health or, you know, mm. my school like guidance counselor said oh, i should try it or whatever it is like the number of students that are coming through that actually like i want to do i want to be an ot um that's awesome is is growing which is wicked because obviously a lot of the sort of promotion stuff that we've been pushing and getting people to actually talk about ot over the last decade mm-hmm. might actually be working shock Yay! horror i know amazing <laughs> So, oh, that's awesome. I mean, I, I really hope that, you know, we don't just graduate 2,000. We graduate 4,000 a year. Like, it'll just grow. How like cool I said, it's that. still growing. It has to. It has to. I'm pretty sure there's at least, there's, I think, two of the schools in Queensland haven't actually graduated the class yet. Like, they're new. Or like oh, wow. New as in the last couple of years new. Um, I know of one new university in Victoria that's just started. I think they've they're up to second year. I could be making that up. Maybe maybe this is their first year. I can't remember. But anyway, there's another university down there. Yeah, they're new. Again, <laughs> they haven't graduated a class yet. Um, so even just that, like that's three new universities awesome. that I know of within the last sort of three years sort of thing so it is definitely growing um i think universities are seeing i I think it'll grow at the moment especially while the federal government is pushing incentives for people to study health um a lot of those universities though are are capped i know some Mm. of well no no i can't say a lot of them but i know some of them are capped numbers and i don't know whether that's sort of just the sort of cost benefit analysis or however they worked Mm. out what that cap is but um yeah i know some of them are like capped at however many numbers per cohort kind of thing but i guess if you if you flip the scenario on its head like you probably wouldn't want to go to a lecture for ot with like 400 people because would you get out of that class what you could if it wasn't sort of those small internet classes where you get to get that one-on-one, you get that teaching approach, like that teacher that, that helps you out with all the things or, you know, would we get more therapy? <laughs> Maybe this is the counter argument. I love having this with myself, but like, would we get more therapists then that are just, you know, theory-based therapists because they've learned all the the knowledge, but not all the actual like, skills of you know say splinting or home mods Mm. or something like that because the classes are too big i think theoretically that could be the case i do Mm. think one of the biggest barriers is placements 
Oh, yeah. Because I think, I, I know a lot of universities, I've heard, no, I don't know, but I've heard from a lot of universities are struggling to find placements already. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if you double the number of graduates, that's double the number of placements that are required. And yeah. I don't see that happening in the next four or five years because, like I said, they're already struggling. So I don't know whether we, there needs to be some sort of like campaign to get therapists mm. to be more open to taking students. Mm. Um, I, I'm not, I don't know what the answer is. I don't have the answers. I just pretend to sometimes. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that's, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the main barrier to why we aren't pushing mm. out more students kind of thing. Yeah. Just logistically, because I mean, because we're, unlike other professions, like we're federated by a world federation that has set the standard mm. for our, essentially how our courses are accredited. And one of those accreditation things is that they're meeting a thousand hours of placement. So if we can't hit mm. that thousand hours of placement, then not just those students, but the whole course yeah. loses its accreditation. So Huge. it's like, yeah. and that And that thousand hours it was so good. Like, I think it helped. And I mean, I probably didn't get a massive diverse range of things, but it definitely helped me go, oh, that's the type of OT I really like. No, that's that's definitely not the OT that I should go into. Um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, I've heard you speak about it before, like OT is so diverse, which is really cool because you can bring your personal experiences and your personal kind of thoughts and beliefs to the profession and sort of go, where do I fit? Am I a hand therapist? Am I a pediatric therapist? Am I a mental health therapist? Am I a driving specialist? You know, how do I fit in this world that, um, you know, I think PRAC is such a cool, cool way of doing that. So I hope, I mean, maybe there is, there does need to be incentives. I don't know. For I know private that, practices anyway. I know there has been talk. Uh, actually, it was at the Sydney conference that I first heard of it. Um, there is talk of like, do we need a thousand hours? Um, and, or is uh, is the mm. competency of the student uh, going to be sort of at the same level if we did say five hundred hours? Um, which I think you know, mm. if I understand the the breadth of experience is going to be different, but if the competency level as a therapist is the same at five hundred as opposed to a thousand, I think you're going to find a lot more places placements. <laughs> Uh, if you only had to find 500 hours for each student as opposed to a 1,000, which, you know, maybe if that – I think someone is researching it. But because mm. um, I think the argument was initially uh, from – because I know who did the research and one, or Merrily Penland at the University of Sydney, I think, um, mm. was that the 1,000 hours was essentially a number that was – picked out of the air to start with and then we've again we've just done it always done it because that's the way it's always been done <laughs> no so the oh the God. the it was more a critical analysis of is this mm. still serving the profession um yeah this thousand hours this random number that was plucked out of the air so yeah. you never know that may if that research comes back and says this is you know we only need 500 hours or 600 hours yeah. to be a competent therapist then or a competent new grad, um, yeah. then that may be, that may open up the opportunity to be able mm. to, you know, push more graduates through because it's, again, like we spoke about the whole episode, we've removed one barrier to entry. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I hope. I mean, look, a thousand hours is a lot. And, and I mean, if it's just an arbitrary number that someone was like, oh, that's a good number, let's pick that one. The one thing I would hope is that you could still get the, diff- the same amount of different experiences. So thinking maybe your practice doesn't need to be as long. So maybe it's not, what did we do in third and fourth year? We did two, six weeks and then a 10-week prac in, in fourth year. Maybe it doesn't need to be those ginormous long placements, but still give you a little bit of a taster in first year, a bit more of a taster in second year, some more, a bit more of a work experience taste in, in third and fourth year so that by the time, like I really appreciated my fourth year supervisor, you know, I was, I was not left to my own devices, but she, you know, she pretty much gave, I was doing therapy for free for a few of her participants who didn't have money to access therapy. And she was like, Hey, I can send this person in as a therapy student and they can do, run the therapy sessions. Yep. And having that experience, let me go, Oh, okay. I know I can do this stuff on my own. And I know that I can be autonomous and, and, and sort of do those sort of things. So I would hope that as if they did cut the hours in some sense, you still got that the work of experience, experience yeah. part and the breadth of it, right? You just still got that like, okay, this is what it's like to work in the profession. Because I know even in ours, like there were so many people that dropped out after first year because they were like, mm, I went to work experience and that was just definitely not me. Um, and that sort of was their tipping point of like, do I stay in this profession or not? Um, That's why I never ended up in pools. <laughs> First year so observational first year observational placement worked with one kid and went, nah, I'm out. No way. I could not do this for the yeah. rest of my life. I'm gonna find a different yeah. area. Yeah, aged care rehab was my one. Just not my thing. Yeah, I love and that. And that's okay. I don't know if I have, actually I love the experience of it. I don't know if I could work as an OT in that area. Yeah. I had fun. But it was mainly yeah. just because I like talking to people. So I was like, oh man, these people have great stories. I didn't get any work done, but I had some great stories. <laughs> so you definitely would have lasted there as a paid therapist for a very long time. Yeah, sure. Let's <laughs> run with that one. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. So what's your what's the the big picture, no holds barred vision for Theratrack? Big picture. Um, so yes, take over I guess the world. I, I suppose, take over the world. Um, Skynet. No, so the big hairy audacious goal actually came out of a startup competition I did a couple of years ago. They were um, it was an artificial intelligence Shark Tank um, pitching competition, and they had this problem where they were looking for um, they were just they're like pitches pitches your idea to try and solve patient engagement outside of outside of the medical office and I sort of went in there with with the therapy idea and they said how does AI fit into this and one of those things of again conversation after conversation with different mentors and then going hold on a second artificial intelligence has these things called matching algorithms and you can and I'm not an artificial intelligence expert so this is this is the layman's version of of the thing that I know about um so there's matching algorithms right where you can look at different things that that all look the same in a, in a big database and then match them to something else. Um, and I sort of went, hold on a second. We can kind of, we do that in research, right? We look at a big pool of people. We do research on say a demographic or a treatment plan or, a, a, you know, a different sort of treatment or whatever it might be. And then at the end of that research, we go, here's the treatment modality or here's the thing that we think will help say with cerebral palsy or whatever it might be. 
And it was one of those aha moments of, hold on a second, I'm creating a database of therapy activities and finding out what works and what doesn't work. And I'm collecting information about the age, the diagnosis, um, the treatment plans, the performance satisfaction, assistance and um, performance satisfaction, assistance and independence about the task. And obviously things like completion rates as well. And completion rates and things like that as well. And so what we can do with that database, once it starts to get big enough, it's definitely not big enough now, is use AI to start to match, to go, okay, um, I can plug into the system. I have a little boy who's five who has these interests, so trains and trucks and cars, for example, who has autism and his um, early intervention goals are fine motor skills and, say, emotional regulation. Using artificial intelligence, we can then use the matching algorithm to actually spit out treatment strategies for that kid. Um, So the big, crazy, no holds bar, if it works, it works, and I'll come back and talk to you in the next three years and we'll be like, yes, it worked. No, it didn't work, still working on it, Um, is to create not just their track that's the tool that therapists use and that um, is the engine that they're creating, but an engine that they can then create so that we can create real-time predictive treatment strategies for people that don't have access to the therapy. So... So you're thinking like yes. more so the client could just access it. Yeah. So not in a sense of getting rid of therapists. We're not going to get rid of therapists. That's never going to happen. I think I therapists not. You just really... asked us to make more. Jeez. Exactly. Oh, no. No, no, no. There's... <laughs> My theory is, is there's not enough of us and I can't see the workforce spitting out another 30,000 in the next five years as fast as we need them to happen. But we can use technology to increase access and reduce cost. So in places where, and this isn't necessarily in Western culture, right? This isn't necessarily, say, here in Sydney mm. where there's somewhat of an abundance. Yes, it's weightless, but there's somewhat of an abundance of, of therapists. Say, for example, in somewhere like Asia where there's not almost no therapists and they there's just not enough therapists to support the kids that are coming through, say, with different disabilities or different challenges. How do we help those parents get access to something that is a clinically validated tool mm. by therapists that are currently using it to just get some of those early intervention strategies. It might not be everything, but at least it's something, right? At least it's something to get that kid up to scratch with his fine motor skills or up to scratch with his social skills or help mum learn how to sit next to him and, and do, you know, play-based activities or give her strategies to do those sorts of things. So that's, I think digital health and artificial intelligence and all those really cool things can can sort of enable that to happen and create kind of I'm thinking of it like an infinite loop right you've got on one side of this loop you've got therapists creating strategies working with real people getting real-time information and obviously this has to be a clinically clinically trialed and all of mm. the above but looking on that side and then going okay well then I've got these parents or these people that don't have access to a therapist by means of affordability or access or or location or whatever it might be how do we help them because we know that preventative model of healthcare is the best form of healthcare in a sense of if it longevity wise like if you look at the longitudinal studies if I get preventative or early intervention I'm going to be a more productive person in society I might have a job I might contribute to the economy and all those sorts of things so that the long-term effects of that are awesome but if I don't have access to that person, what's my burden on the healthcare system? So if we can help them early on to do these early intervention strategies or help kids or maybe you recognise the warning signs or you go, okay, I don't have 
the physical ability to go see a therapist. I don't have the money to go see a therapist because mm. uh, I don't have the NDIS, which is awesome in Australia, but I've, you know, got a little bit of private health fund, but then I, that's all I've got. How do I help them keep going with therapy with, you know, simple things like, you know, maybe it's a game, maybe it's playing with dolls and learning social skills or whatever it might be, but helping those parents who aren't necessarily therapists, I guess, coach them in a sense so that they can become a bit of a therapist, <laughs> not completely, but yeah, that's the big hairy audacious goal. That is big. Yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't far off when I said taking over the world then. Okay. <laughs> no. I like so it. if anyone's listening and knows uh, an AI specialist, would love to speak to them um, and who's interested in this area, that's my call out on your podcast because I think finding people that are interested and passionate about this space is, is who I want to work with. Um, and because it's about as much as it's a business and it's a profit for purpose business, I would really love to help a billion people over make a billion dollars. Billion dollars will come. That's that's totally going to happen if we help a billion people. That's fine. But if I can help a billion people to finish school, get a job, how cool is that? That would be pretty amazing. Pretty cool. I like it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. That's my call out on your podcast. But... I like it. So in three years when that's done, <clears throat> come back. We'll talk all about the AI aspect. How we took crack, over the world. How it didn't turn into Skynet and how everybody <laughs> has access to therapy now. I like oh, yeah. it. Yeah, we'll work on that one. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Where can, obviously, I've, theratrack.co if they want to check out the app yep. where else can people find you find business if they want to check out more information about this kind of stuff yeah we're on instagram we're on facebook we're always putting up all of our latest updates and videos on instagram facebook linkedin people can link with me on linkedin it's just laura simmons um or link with theratrack if you want to on linkedin as well we do free demos. There are videos on our website about what the platforms all entail. Um, and then there's also a 30-day free trial. Um, so you can just sign up, have a go, see if you like it. If you like it, awesome. If you don't like it, tell me why you don't like it so I can fix it. Um, that problem-solving piece. And then I know there's also a, um, a discount code on the website at the moment. If you sign up to our mailing list, you can get three months at 50% off. So you still get your 30 days free, but you get the next three months at 50% off because I know that behavior change is hard and learning new tools is tricky. So I don't want the cost to be a big barrier for that. Awesome. And I'll throw yeah. links to all of those different things. Yeah in the show i probably should note all the prices on the website are in australian dollars so if you're in the us and the uk it probably is even cheaper as well yeah <laughs> which is good because usually it's the other way around and i always get tricked yep it's usually oh yep. i just bought this thing oh it was only 80 bucks oh wait that's 80 bucks us which is like eight million dollars australian yeah yeah awesome yeah. thanks so much dude awesome. that's a lot of fun. no worries yeah i loved it it was so good thanks for having me on anytime Three years' time, book it in. <laughs> Three years' time, we'll book it in. And I'll probably put it in the wrong calendar and miss it again. <laughs> yeah, we'll survive. We'll work oh, it Oh, no, out. you'll have an automated system by That's then. That's right. AI like... will like just log, yeah. log me into Zoom without me yeah. having to know and just like on you, on your, project it so into my Google eyes glasses. or something. Yeah, perfect. Done. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to occupiedpodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. 
If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.